Heavenly Father, I do thank you that I'm back safe and that the trip was a success from the standpoint that we went and taught and did what you asked us to do and came back. And now, Father, as we've uh, prepared for one more teaching in the Gospel of John, I'm also thankful, Lord, that you gave me the time and opportunity to to prepare and to be ready for this. And uh, thank you for a room that is filled, Father, with men and women who desire to hear your word. It's always uh, eye-opening, Father, in another place as I travel and I get the chance to see that uh, we're not all blessed in the same way equally, Father, and that for many believers, the chance to hear your word on a regular basis is a delight and a dream. And, uh, and yet we sit here, Father, with an embarrassment of riches, and we do so as a function of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would never withhold that from us. And as we study the scriptures tonight, Lord, um, some things will be familiar, some things will be new, but all things will be relevant and all things applicable to uh, our own walk as Christians. I pray, Lord, you will uh, establish in our hearts the truth of these matters, but also establish for us the urgency in our own walk to live according to what we learn and to uh, prepare us, Father, for the days ahead that we know will come when eventually we will see your son face to face and these things will, will all be fully revealed. And we look forward to that day. Thank you for the opportunity to begin to understand it even now to a degree according to your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start tonight in a little different fashion. Keep your thumbs on John chapter 6, but turn back to Psalm 23 for just a moment. Uh, We're going to read together the first two verses. Let's start. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The first half of John's sixth chapter is the apostle's best case for Jesus as the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Jesus is our shepherd who cares for our needs. And Jesus is our comforter in times of stress. He takes waters and makes them still. And as we're going to see in the events of this chapter, you're going to find both of these verses addressed in the storyline of what's told in John chapter six. The events of chapter six are set a full year after the events of chapter five and within only a year of Jesus's crucifixion. And that corresponds to the late Galilean period of Jesus's earthly ministry. The late Galilean period is that period right before he go to Jerusalem for his death. And that period dominates the narratives of the other three Gospels. When you look at the content of the other three Gospels, the majority of what's described in those short of the Passion is the late Galilean period. But John only devotes chapters six and seven to that period, which makes sense, right? Because he understood that the other Gospels had already addressed these matters in such detail. But that begs a question. If he does devote any time at all to the late Galilean period, it must mean that what he's choosing to pick up on in this period must be something important. He's chosen to emphasize certain things about that period. So beginning in chapter six, we see the first of these. We'll begin in chapter six, verses one through seven, as we open this story. By the way, I'll mention as we begin, if you go to the website and download these notes, there is a map that I've embedded in. You may have a map in your Bible, but it helps set some of the geography as we hear of the things happening in this chapter. All right. Verse one, John writes, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was near. 
Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. All right, this is the feeding of the 5,000 that we've all studied or heard at some point. I'm sure John opens this account by saying, after these things. Now, he does not mean directly after the events of chapter 5. As I mentioned already, these two things happen a year apart. At the beginning of chapter 5, if you remember, at the very beginning of the last chapter, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover, we were told, back in chapter 5. Now notice in John chapter 6, verse 4, John mentions an upcoming Passover feast again which is not the same Passover, but an entirely different one. So a whole year has passed between the chapter 5 events and the chapter 6 events. John has skipped over a whole bunch of stuff that happened in that year, and probably because, as I said, the other writers had already covered it sufficiently. Still, John does choose to include this account, the following account of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Clearly, that would make this an important moment. All gospel writers felt it was. But John has something to add to what the other writers have recorded concerning these events. And so as we go through them, we're going to be making comparisons from time to time between his account and the other gospels so as to understand what John is trying to emphasize that's different. For example, to begin with, according to Mark's gospel, Jesus travels from his home area near Capernaum. And again, if you have a map looking at the Sea of Galilee, that's on the northwestern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Mark says he's traveling from there back over to Bethesda, which is on the northeast coast. John simply says they went to the other side of the Galilee, but we know from Mark we get the details. According to Mark's account, Jesus sails about three miles, cutting across the northern tip of the sea. The prevailing winds in that area are from west to east, so if we assume they were sailing with the wind on that day, it would have taken maybe an hour maybe a little longer than an hour for them to sail from where they started to where they went. In that place that he lands near Bethesda, it's a remote place. It's not a particularly occupied place. There's no town right there. The town of Bethesda is actually a little ways inland from there. So he's going to a place that really there's no reason to go there. There's nothing there. And you might imagine the disciples were wondering this very same thing as they're on the boat. Why are we going over to this place? In verse 2, we're told a large crowd follows Jesus as he makes this journey and because they're probably seeking more of the same healing ministry they've been seeing him do over in Capernaum. Remember, this is the late Galilean period. He's been working in the Galilee now for a couple of years. So he has a following. And as we're going to learn later in this chapter, they travel by foot. They don't get in boats and follow him on the water. They walk around the northern tip of the Galilee. Now, in this case, the journey by foot is only slightly longer than the journey by water, because it's a very short distance. He's only cutting off the very edge of the tip of the, of the Galilee. And that makes it about a four-mile walk. Average adult walks about three miles an hour. Uh, so they probably arrived in Bethesda only slightly later than Jesus did when he's going by boat. Jesus takes advantage of that head start, we're told, because he comes to the, his place before the rest and then retreats with the disciples up a mountainside, up a nearby mountain, which lies about a kilometer away from the the coast, from the shore. And then at that point in the narrative, John chooses to tell us that the Passover of the Jews was near. Now, consider the details that John has already provided for us in this story. Jesus, 
crossing a body of water. A crowd, a large crowd of needy people following him. Him leading them into a wilderness with no apparent way for them to be sustained in this place. Jesus retreating up the side of a mountain, leaving the people below. All of these things are happening in conjunction with the time of Passover, which is the memorial of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Bells ringing for you? Have I rung any bells? Right away, we notice that John is constructing the narrative to say nothing of the events themselves. So as to draw to our minds to the story of Moses taking Israel out of Egypt with Jesus now playing the role of Charlton Heston. And you can see all these things start to line up in the same fashion as the original story of Exodus did. Friends, that's not a coincidence. There's a purpose in all of that. As John mentions the Passover, he does so intentionally at this stage of the narrative so that we would make that connection so that it would start to ring that bell. Now, obviously, we know Jesus fulfills the Passover as the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. That's the ultimate way in which the connection is made. John's already given us that, though, back when he spoke those very words through John the Baptist. So there's no surprise in that part of it. Later in the Passion of Christ, we see Jesus actually completing that picture when he dies on the cross as the Lamb of God, right? But at this point in the narrative, John is working to bring another aspect of that connection to us, another aspect of the Exodus account into clear focus. That is of the role of Moses in how he led Israel out of bondage. In fact, John has already been at work in the previous chapter, setting this up in a connection that I didn't raise back in chapter five. It was subtle, but it's there. Remember, after the first Passover and the resulting Exodus, the Israelites required food and water in order to be sustained in the wilderness. Remember that part of the story? And you remember how God provided a rock that would produce water for them in the desert? And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Paul says that rock was intended to be a picture of Christ. So in chapter 4, John showed us how Jesus fulfilled that part of the picture of the Exodus when he told the Samaritan woman at the well that he was a source of living water. That is, he was confirming that he is the rock that gives us the water that we will never thirst from again. And so Jesus was fulfilling the picture of the rock from Exodus when he was talking to the woman. Now, here we are a year later, once again at the Passover, once again showing new aspects of the Exodus story being fulfilled in Christ. This time it's not water that will be the concern. This time it is food or bread that will be the concern. So as Jesus stands on the mountain, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the crowd gathering at the base of the mountain, waiting for Jesus to descend. He turns to one of his disciples, Philip, in this case, and asks him, what are we going to do to feed all these people? Now, that question is relevant, as we've said, because the place is so desolate. It was so remote and the people were so numerous. And he's telling his disciples, we are assuming responsibility for these people. I mean, that's inherently what he's saying. So the people have evidently followed Jesus without giving any thought at all for what they're going to eat or how they're going to take care of themselves. And so now the responsibility falls upon Jesus and the disciples. I like to imagine that as Jesus was asking Philip this question, looking at him, that Jesus's eyes may have been glancing up to heaven at that very moment, sort of as a hint, you know, how are we going to feed all of these people, Philip? Hoping Philip's memory of of the Exodus story might kick in right about now and he might remember how God solved this problem back in the desert and that would lead him into the right solution, but no, it it doesn't really work. And in verse 6, John says that Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was just asking this as a test. That begs a question. What was the test? I mean, what was he testing? I like to think the test was whether the disciples would recognize this picture of the Exodus 
And did they then put Jesus in the starring role as Charlton Heston? Did they understand this is just like those days? And if so, it would give them an opportunity to understand that this reenactment is not just for the sake of reminding us of the past, but to point to Christ in a new and, and fuller way to understand that the angel of the Lord in the desert was Christ, that the Lord has always been the one. And would they put two and two together? Would they realize that the God of Israel in the desert is the same God that is standing on the side of the mountain with them now in this time? Would they understand Jesus is that God? You see, it's always about Jesus's identity. It's been that way in chapter three with Nicodemus. It was that way in chapter four with the Samaritan woman. Here we are again. That's John's overriding theme is who is Jesus? And here the question has become, do you know me to be the one who fed Israel in the desert? But that was a bridge too far for the disciples, at least at this point. Philip misses the whole point of the question. He responds, you notice, with this sense of hopelessness, of defeat. He says, not even 200 denarii would be enough money to buy even a little food for all of these people. And his statement gives us an indication of how many people we're talking about here, because 200 denarii represents about eight months salary in that day. And that's an easy way for us to make a comparison, because a working man today in the U.S. would probably be said to make maybe forty thousand dollars a year. If you want to use a, a low estimate, that's still an enormous amount of money, even for us today. If you gave it to somebody all at once, forty thousand dollars. And Philip says that's not enough money to buy even a little food for each of these people. Think about how much food you can buy for forty thousand dollars at Costco, you know, in bulk. And Philip just makes this matter of fact assessment of the situation, doesn't he? He just reports the findings. There's, there's no spiritual dimension to his answer. He doesn't consider supernatural possibilities. He's thinking only of what men are capable of doing when they try to solve a problem of this magnitude. He's like an accountant. He did the math. And when he came out of the math of it, he says, well, you know, we would need more than 200 denarii if we even have a hope to solve this situation. And since they lack the capability, well, that leads you inevitably to the conclusion, well, the situation's hopeless. Matthew's gospel adds that the disciples went a step further at this point and they recommended to Jesus that they send the people away because they didn't have any food for these people. Send them away. That's exactly the way the Israelites were thinking when they sized up their own situation in their heart, when they were walking in the desert with Moses. You remember how they responded. They told Moses that they expected to starve in the desert as a result of there being nothing for them to eat. And a step worse than that, they blame God for their predicament. In Exodus 16, 2 and 3, they say the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, think about it for a minute. The people knew the Lord had brought them there, right? They had, they had seen all those miraculous ways that God freed them from Egypt and brought them into the desert. But despite all that, they had not considered the possibility, not even the possibility, that this same God could feed them supernaturally in the desert. So they assumed they're going to die of starvation, even though... God had a plan to free two million people from the most powerful nation on earth. But wouldn't you know, he hadn't foreseen the need to feed them in the desert when he got them there. It's incongruity. Right? How do you make those two fit in the same mind? Here you see exactly the same scenario, really. And I think it's intentional. I think God is playing it out the same way for a purpose. You have the disciples now playing the part of the Israelites. Philip can't see a solution. 
because he's too busy discounting Jesus's potential to perform a miracle for God's potential to do that. This is the same Jesus. Remember, late Galilean period. This is the same Jesus for who for the last two years has been healing everybody and and doing miraculous signs at, at a turn. But he can't feed him. So if this is a test, they fail the test. Philip fails the test, right? He fails to understand Jesus's identity and then by association, his power to take care of the problem. He didn't recognize this Jesus to be the same Lord who could feed Israel in the desert. And so sent him away. Let them find their own food. Jesus moves ahead with a supernatural solution. Verse 8 through 13. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, well, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the man sat down, the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and Having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. You have this enterprising disciple, Andrew, and he offers this potential solution. He says, I see a young boy down there. He's moving around. He's got some small fish and he's got some barley loaves. The word for lad, by the way, in Greek here, it literally means little male child. So we're talking here about a boy. He's maybe six or seven. And the Greek word for fish here is also a word for very small fish. So it's probably something like an anchovy. It would have been done like this. You had a little bit of bread and a little bit of relish basically made out of the fish. And that's the idea of it. It's appetizers that he's just selling. Probably his dad is there with him and he sees an opportunity to peddle the goods. He says, son, get busy. There's some people hungry here. Let's see what we can do. Now, here's the funny part. Why did Andrew think to propose the child's basket of goods as a solution to this problem? I mean, Philip just said, we, if we had 40 grand, we couldn't solve this problem. And Andrew says, well, look, there's a little kid with some fish and, and loaves. What was he thinking? At this point in the story, most of us, I think, run past this, right? It's kind of a comical moment. It's sort of a little quizzical, but then we just keep moving because we want to get on to what comes next. The heart, the heart of the story is what Jesus does, right? We understand that. But remember, Jesus turned this meager meal into a miraculous provision. But we shouldn't run past. Why did the apostles even think to suggest this source to Jesus? Andrew's suggestion is so pathetic, it almost is nonsensical. And the thought that he raises it as a point in the conversation leaves us questioning, well, was there some reason why God needed this done? For example, did Andrew think Jesus could do something miraculous with this? I mean, are we going to give him enough credit to consider that maybe he was expecting something to be done? I say no, because of the way Andrew finishes the sentence, it's almost as though he realizes too late that his own idea is no help. It's like the words come out of his mouth and then he's listening to himself saying, well, that's a crazy idea. Why am I even mentioning that? Right. But it's his contribution to the story, if you think about it, that creates the significant detail and allows for the rest of the story to play out. And it's also a significant departure from the comparison to the Exodus story. It's actually the first significant divergence from what Jesus is doing compared to what Moses did. Remember, in the desert situation, the Lord provided food for Israel with no starting substance. It was manna falling from heaven. He didn't have anything on earth, even something meager, as a starting trigger, as some kind of seed. Obviously, Jesus is going to perform something here equally impressive when it's all said and done. But it is significant that he chooses to multiply something already on earth, as opposed to starting with something fresh. Because he could have started with nothing. That's self-evident. 
But in this situation, nothing new is going to come down from heaven. This time he begins with something very meager, barely noticeable, hardly suitable. It's a solution proposed by a disciple, something that's insignificant in the eyes of men and hardly sufficient when you look at it from our eyes. But it becomes the solution that God needs. And we need to understand why the Lord changed the program in this miracle compared to the one in Exodus when he's working so hard to make a parallel for us between the two. This departure, it turns out to be an important one in the retelling of the manna story. And it becomes clearer in the second half of this chapter as Jesus discusses the meaning of these things with the crowd. So we are going to wait till we get there to understand why this is such a significant departure. Some of you may already see it yourselves. The rest of you are just really frustrated at this point. Moving on, we should also note in passing that there are a total of seven food items in the boy's basket, which is a number that should catch our attention, of course. Seven is a number which means in the Bible the total or the complete or fulfilled number of something. And here's a good way to compare that or to understand that in today's way of thinking. The number we would use today in order to say the total of something is 100%. 100%. So the Bible's version of 100% is the number seven. That's another way to understand it. So something is being completed or fulfilled in this story through these seven items. And that's the thing we're going to try to understand going forward. Back to the story, Jesus gives instructions to his disciples, and they're familiar to all of us. We've heard this story, I'm sure, at some point. Jesus instructs the people to sit. Notice John goes out of his way to mention they're going to be sitting on grass, green pastures. In Mark's gospel, we're told that they sit in groups of hundreds and fifties, which is simply to say they're in small, manageable groups. And we can very easily imagine a practical purpose in this because Jesus is about to feed them. And when people see food coming to them, they tend to rush toward it so they can make sure they get their fair share. But if you've been told to sit down, then that suggests orderliness and it imparts a sense of confidence on the crowd that there's a plan. And if there's a plan, there must be adequate supply and we're going to get ours in turn. We don't need to worry. And all of that just keeps order. But those practical issues are not the main issue. They're not the main reason Jesus sits them down in the grass. The main purpose is Psalm 23. The shepherd is the one who causes his sheep to lie down in green pastures. The shepherd cares for his sheep to make sure they have their rations. Jesus is acting as the shepherd. The sheep don't have the ability to find their own green pastures, by the way. If you were to do an exposition on Psalm 23, or if you've heard one, I'm sure people would tell you, sheep are famously stupid animals. They tend to move in a field with their eyes down, following what's in front of their faces, and they'll do that to the point of stumbling into danger. And so they depend on a shepherd to lead them to the right pasture. And then when they're told to lie down, they do. And it's in this sense of submission, but also one of, of confident expectation and dependence. So Jesus' instructions were part of testifying that he is the shepherd of Psalm 23 because he cares for us when we can't care for ourselves. That is true for every member of Jesus' flock. Even when we think we're providing for ourselves in our daily occupation or through our savings, we're only fooling ourselves if in the end of it we think it's by our own hand. Because by that thinking, we're at risk of overlooking the Lord's provision and his constant presence in our life. Because everything we have comes from the Lord. In fact, our daily provision, even if it arrives by way of a, a weekly paycheck or a 1099 or stored up savings, that doesn't mean your security is any less the result of God's ongoing provision of grace. Just ask anyone who's lost their job or lost their savings or seen some other financial calamity. At any moment, those things 
can and often do disappear. And when they do, only then do some people finally recognize that what they have in terms of security comes only from the Lord and not from what you may possess at any given moment. Your security comes from the shepherd and his willingness to lay you down in new green pastures, causing you to lay down. So at this point, John gives us the headcount of the people. He says that the men numbered 5,000. I would suspect most of you have heard somebody talk about this at some point and tell you, well, if these are only the men, then you also have women. You also have children. I think it's interesting just up front that we're talking about a five. The number five in Scripture means grace. So you have the number of grace being evidenced here. And, of course, 5,000 men means 5,000 families. 5,000 families means a lot of people, which would explain why $40,000 wasn't enough to even feed them all just a little. In fact, just conservative math, you're talking 15 to maybe as many as 30,000 people at the base of this mountain when you add up all the kids and and wives if the whole family is there. And when you consider that this scene takes place near the end of Jesus' years of working in the Galilee, then it is entirely likely that he could have amassed this kind of a following, willing to walk four miles to follow him if necessary to keep getting the healing they've been getting. But it would also explain why the Pharisees viewed Jesus as such a threat. Can you imagine what it means if 30,000 people are willing to follow somebody like this? It's enough to start a revolution, to overthrow power. Next, Jesus gives thanks, we're told, for the food, and then the miracle. He begins to break the bread and divide the fish out, And John says Jesus distributed the food to the people, but Mark's gospel and the others as well clarify that Jesus distributed the food through the hands of the disciples. So Jesus is not the one who's actually physically distributing the food. It is the disciples. So what does that look like? If we think about the logistics of this, that's important. Jesus hands the food to a disciple or puts it in the disciple's basket. The disciple carries the basket down the mountain to the people who are waiting. And they go to a group, a cell of some number, and they hand out what's there in their basket till their basket is empty. And then what do they have to do? They have to walk back up a mountain to Jesus and put more in it and then walk right back down. And that process is going on times 12 because there's 12 disciples doing this, according to John. And so you have this little procession of people going up and down, up and down. Jesus sitting at the top and everyone eating, it says, until they've eaten their fill. Now, you have to wonder what's going on in the minds of the disciples as they move up and down that mountain, filling their baskets for several reasons. First of all, they know Jesus started with very little food. And now they find every time they go to the top, their basket is getting filled once more. But I find it interesting that there's no conversation recorded in any of the four Gospels amongst any of the disciples as this process is taking place. I imagine they're speechless because they don't know what to say as they go through this process, although I would also assume that as two men were crossing on that mountain trip every time, they might have been exchanging some interesting glances as they're going, like as they're walking up and down the mountain. After the crowd has been fed, which you have to imagine this is now several hours of work. After the crowd has been fed, Jesus orders the disciples to collect the excess food from the people. Now, don't overlook this. This is such a great detail in the story. The disciples are required to collect the food from the people that they themselves are going to eat. Now, we know the Lord could simply have multiplied another round of baskets for these guys, but he doesn't do that. Instead, the disciples' food has already been handed out, but to the people down below. So that literally the Lord has given away the disciples' food. So now the disciples have to go back down and retrieve it if they're going to eat anything at all. So how do we imagine the disciples went about that collecting process? Obviously, they had to petition the people to have some of the food back. 
the people would likely have wanted to keep it for themselves, mostly. If they hadn't been asked to give it back, they certainly wouldn't have thrown it back up the mountain. They were holding on to it. So the disciples had to, as I imagine it, had to walk among the people with their baskets, calling for any of the excess food, collecting it, putting it in their own baskets. And that excess materialized, just as Jesus said, the Lord had ensured that there would be a provision for each of those servants, each of those workers, such that at the end they each had a basket filled with just what they needed. That was all that there was excess. The excess exactly matched the need, which is also what we found in the story of Exodus concerning the manna, that each would go out and collect for their family. And no matter who could collect the most or the least, whoever was strongest or largest or smallest, it mattered not. Everyone came back with exactly the amount that their family needed, as it turned out, each and every day. So the Lord had ensured that there would be more provided to the people than the people needed so that there was an excess amongst the people for those who served the people. And it was a provision intended to meet the needs of those who were serving them in the faith. Notice the amount collected was exactly 12 baskets. Now, what Jesus was trying to teach us by way of of constructing this very interesting, laborious process of feeding not only the people, but also feeding the disciples is a very important set of lessons. Let's start with what he was teaching us concerning the feeding of the people. First, Jesus often begins his greatest works among people with the most meager beginnings. When Jesus turned to Philip, it was Philip's opportunity to suggest something great might happen here. Instead, he gave up because there was no readily visible solution. And friends, faith isn't faith if it only relies on what can be seen, as Paul teaches, right? Sincere, active faith requires a willingness to act in hopeful expectation of something you cannot see as yet. Now, Andrew was a little step closer to doing that in what he said, because at least he suggested a solution that would have had to depend on faith if it was going to ever come to being sufficient, right? It was so meager. But then just as quickly, he retreated from that faith by abandoning the whole possibility, even as he said it. What would have happened if somebody in that group had suggested to Jesus that they hand out this boy's food with the expectation that somehow the Lord would make it sufficient to meet the needs of this crowd of 20, 30,000 people? I think if that had happened, you would have seen exactly the same outcome. No different. That's the whole point. Jesus' opening question was an opportunity for these guys to participate in an already planned miraculous work of God, one that was going to happen with or without them. Jesus didn't need their ideas. It was a test. Jesus asked them to be a part of it, but they chose not to be, at least initially, to be a part of it. It was a work that the Lord was prepared to perform with or without them. And by offering them the chance to believe in it before they saw it, they could have been blessed by having their faith strengthened. That's the real spiritual blessing for a believer when they act in faith. Just as Jesus told Thomas later in John's gospel, John 20, 27 through 29. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God, Jesus said to him, because you've seen, have you believed? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have faith who can act on the belief, not on just the sight. So the first lesson is those who serve the Lord must step out with faith, expecting that the Lord is prepared to work with some kind of meager beginning. And we don't let those meager beginnings hold us back, thinking that they can't suffice. We understand that faith will naturally start with things that are unseen. That's the way it always works. Secondly, the Lord's servant can't stray far from the master in the service that he provides. Many Bible commentators have observed this. I'm certainly not the first. 
Jesus made the disciples return to him repeatedly as they went about the business of serving the people. Each disciple's success then depended on continually returning to the Lord to fill that basket for the next group of people. If they returned to the Lord, they had something to offer the people. If they didn't come back, they soon ran out and were of no use to the people. That picture could not be clearer in the way God has orchestrated this little train of dependency. You have to abide in Christ if you're going to serve in his power. The disciples could not make the food multiply on their own. They did not possess magic baskets. They were simply waiters. Now, on the other hand, the role of a waiter is not irrelevant. Jesus designed the miracle so that it depended on the disciples delivering the food to the people. It wasn't going to roll down the hill to them. So at first, the people were unaware of what was going on up there. They're just receiving the food. They knew the disciples were bringing them a meal. That's about all they could see, right? No one ministers to God's people by virtue of their brilliance or their training or their experience or by the sheer force of their personality or any of that nonsense. Successful servants of God only deliver what Jesus provides for them to deliver to the flock. And what he gives us tends to run out. Pretty quickly, if we're not going back to the well continually. So you have to return time and time again. In our situation, that means literally returning to the word, returning to prayer, returning to repentance and humility. And if you do those sorts of things, then you can be useful to him because you can become part of the amazing work he's already planning. Thirdly, from our limited perspective, the works that we're called to join in rarely appear miraculous or even very important but yet God can use them in a collective fashion to create something very amazing. Consider these disciples for a moment. You know, they never witnessed, I think, as far as I can tell, they never witnessed the moment Jesus was multiplying the bread of the fish. They never saw it happen. All more likely what they simply found when they came up to the top was him with a bunch of food ready to drop in their basket. They don't necessarily know where it materialized from, although they can tell obviously something's going on. But in the moment, their job was nothing more than pick up the food, deliver it, pick up the food, deliver it. And often I think that's what it's like to serve God in our own experiences. We're just delivering fish. We're just handing out bread. Only in our case, it's volunteering for duty in the church, participating in a service project, uh, hosting someone in our house, meeting a prayer request, writing a check to a ministry or whatever it is we do. Those are moments. Those are not miraculous outcomes. But collectively, God does a miraculous thing through all of that work. There's no guarantee that he's going to let us see the, the wizard behind the curtain, so to speak, in the way that he puts these things to work. Although, by his grace, sometimes he's, he's willing to let us peek into the supernatural and see what he's willing to do. And that is a, a blessing when it happens. But most of the time, we don't see that. We just know of the outcome in the aggregate. And one day in heaven, in our glory, we will learn of all the works of God and how we participated in those things by faith, even when we didn't know that that was what we were doing. And then finally, those who serve the Lord should expect that their hard work will be met by an adequate provision from the Lord. And that provision will not materialize out of thin air. It comes as a consequence of serving God's people diligently. I have to imagine the disciples were pretty exhausted after their little treks up and down that hill, right? They were working hard. I wonder if any of them ever thought, Jesus, can you just walk down the mountain and meet us down at the bottom and we'll just do it from down there? I mean, do I have to keep coming up the mountain? Perhaps they wondered when it would be their turn to eat. Or if they'd run out of food before it was their turn to eat. You know, you wonder if they're snacking in the basket on the way down. But in the end, the Lord took care of them. A servant of God should expect to receive the Lord's provision as a consequence of working hard to serve God's people. And that provision will be supplied from the hands of those you serve. The Lord supplies his people with an excess for that reason. 
Although the trick is getting the Lord's people to perceive what they have as containing an excess intended for those who serve. And the Lord will call upon the people to relinquish the excess while he calls upon the Lord's servants to go out with baskets collecting it. I mean, we get the picture, right? God's people have to be willing to relinquish. God's servants have to be willing to ask. But the servant's provision is no more luxurious than the one given to God's people. In this case, the disciples received the same provision that the people received from the Lord, some fish and bread. If Jesus had been handing out steak and lobster, then I think the disciples would have received the same in kind. Or if he had been handing out rice and beans, the same. There is no case in which a servant should be expected to prosper beyond the means of what is true for those they serve. But neither should a servant be forced to live in poverty by comparison or in want, as the Bible would say, in comparison to those they serve. Always remember that if we have food and covering, we should be content, Paul says, and that is a command to every Christian. Those are the lessons I draw from what I see in this moment. There's probably many other good ones. Sooner or later, the crowd does realize that something's going on up on that mountain. And that's where the story takes a little turn here in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which had been performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The people declare this miracle was a sign. Calling something a sign means that you believe God has revealed something to you through these events. What was the revelation they received? Well, it appears as though they recognize the connection to the Exodus story, that it all dawned on them at some point. And the reason I say that is when they say truly the prophet has come into the world, they are speaking of something Moses himself promised in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, meaning pictured by me, from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, that prophet that Moses described that he said would come one day to Israel is Jesus, is the Messiah. So the people are correct when they recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise from Moses. But they go in the wrong direction with it in the second half of that verse. You notice they conclude that this prophet has been sent to conquer Israel's political enemy, Rome, and to lead Israel back into political freedom, just as Moses led Israel out of slavery from Egypt and into the promised land, eventually through Joshua. So they start organizing down at the base of the mountain. They say, let's go get Jesus and let's install him as our new political leader. Clearly, that's what God wants. Notice John says they want to take Jesus by force. Now, in the Greek, it's not exactly clear if that means they're preparing to force Jesus to go or if they just mean the people are going to join Jesus in forcing the Romans out. One way or the other, they're going to try to get their way. It's exactly the wrong idea. It's exactly the wrong way to imagine Jesus's purpose in coming to Israel. Yes, he is the prophet that Moses promised, but he came for heavenly, eternal purposes, not earthly, temporal purposes. And to properly understand the connection between Jesus's ministry and Moses's ministry, rather than the way they perceive it, you first have to understand that anytime you have a picture in Scripture, it always moves from a lesser form 
to a greater form. Pictures of later things to be fulfilled start in a lesser form and picture upward to a greater form in its fulfillment. So a true lamb pictures the lamb of God. Well, obviously, the lamb of God is a greater than the lamb that they sacrificed in the Passover and so on. Well, look at Moses in that same way. Moses's life and his work is constructed by God to form a lesser version of Jesus's entire ministry from his from Moses's birth to his exile in the desert, to his return for Israel, to his role as a mediator and so on. And if you want all of these details, go take our Exodus study because we showed all of that. But all of those things have a lesser to greater relationship in looking at Christ. And we can name a couple of obvious ones. Uh, Moses set Israel free from slavery to Egypt. But Jesus sets men free from slavery to sin. Moses led Israel into the old covenant written in stone. Jesus leads men into the new covenant written in his body and on our hearts. Moses conquered the army of Egypt. Jesus conquers the forces of Satan. So everything had a greater relationship as you look in Jesus. And those just scratched the surface. Moses is one of the greatest pictures of Jesus in the Bible. So Jesus's ministry, by all accounts, is a greater ministry than that of Moses. But the people miss that. They miss the lesser to greater relationship. They make it a parallel relationship. And friends, as I've often found, when pictures in Scripture are misapplied, it's almost always in that way. We make them parallel as opposed to lesser to greater. So they perceive Moses and the prophet, that is Jesus, working on the same level for the same purposes. And that is a constant source of confusion amongst the people and among the Pharisees and anyone who was trying to understand Jesus's purpose in his day. They couldn't understand how Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, born in obscure circumstances, could be on a destiny that's greater than, say, Moses or Abraham or even Jacob. Remember, the woman at the well said, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And later the Pharisees will say, you're not greater than Abraham, are you? And he says, well, before Abraham was, I am. There was always this dilemma over how this man could compare to these previously great men or, or entities of Scripture. And even today, people make this mistake. This is, again, a classic mistake in understanding Jesus. They reduce his ministry to teaching only about earthly matters, earthly outcomes. Today, people will say Jesus is just a good teacher or a spiritual leader or a good moral example, or perhaps even they'll condescend to make him a prophet. But that's about the extent of it. They deny him as God, as God himself. So if you deny Jesus as God, then you can safely ignore questions of death and judgment and hell, topics that that raises when you talk about God. By reducing his goals to being nothing more than some kind of earthly agenda or pop psychology or self-esteem or social justice or all that nonsense that we tend to put in the foreground, we are feeling comfortable in our sin because we're not having to wrestle with the true issue that Jesus himself raises, which is what you say about me determines where you end up in eternity. These Jews rushed to assuming the earthly purpose. And they looked at the miracles as proof that he had power to conquer earthly enemies. And they never considered that they themselves were in need of a spiritual solution, which Jesus had come to offer. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles and they respond by saying, hey, let's conquer Rome. When Jesus saw that, when he saw what was developing, we're told he retreats back up the mountain. He makes himself inaccessible to them. That's an important detail. Did he need to do that? He doesn't have to do anything to retreat to solve this problem. He could have stood right there and they could never have touched him. Why does he retreat? In fact, you can even ask, why doesn't he just give them both? Why doesn't he conquer Rome and then still have the whole gospel message as well? They're not necessarily mutually exclusive, at least not on their face. Well, first of all, obviously, he's not going to allow the mission 
that he'd come to earth with to be derailed by their desires. And it's clear he's not going to let them win. Jesus makes himself inaccessible to make a point. You come to me only when you come to me for the reasons I came in the first place. In other words, I am not a smorgasbord. I'm not a buffet. You don't take from me what you like and ignore what you don't like. It's either me and all that I am or it's none of me and I'm inaccessible. He didn't come to defeat Rome. He came to bring salvation. You can't have the part you like and say no to the part you don't like. The kingdom itself could not be installed on earth. In other words, he could not defeat Rome, literally, and set up his own kingdom in this moment because he did not come now for judgment. He came to offer salvation. It's not the time yet for the kingdom. The time is to prepare the citizens to recruit those who will one day become the population that occupies the kingdom. That's the current program. Once the last member of the kingdom, the last citizen appointed to join the kingdom has been recruited and joined, then the time for the kingdom can arrive. And that's not going to be rushed by anyone. Those citizens are being found today, day to day, by faith, and continue to add to the number of those who will be in the kingdom in the future. And until that day comes, he's not vanquishing any earthly kingdom. He's waiting to get them all at once upon his second coming. Now, today, while we wait for that, I think Christians are sometimes prone to falling into this same trap, maybe unintentionally. We reduce the spiritual purposes of the church and the message of the gospel that we've been given to take to the world into achieving earthly goals or defeating earthly kingdoms. We say Jesus fed the people, so our Christian goal should be to feed people. We say Jesus uh, healed the people, so our Christian ministry should be about healing the body and the sick and so on. And we seek to better the lives of people in the physical sense by addressing those physical needs at the risk sometimes of forgetting the whole point of the church is to address eternal spiritual issues. Without a doubt, the church has a mission to show compassion for the needs of people. I'm not denying that. But the New Testament always sets boundaries on that mission. First, benevolence is to be directed to the church, first and foremost. James's letter, which is often quoted about being hungry and needing clothing, if you look at it carefully, he's speaking to what believers should do for believers. There is no general command in Scripture for the church to make a priority of feeding, clothing, or caring for the physical needs of the unbelieving world. That does not exist in Scripture. That doesn't mean it's wrong to do it or that we shouldn't be moved at times to do it. It means it's not the mission of the church to do it. Secondly, when the church does endeavor to meet physical needs in the world, our charity must be purposeful. Friends, we do that because we're seeking opportunities to preach the gospel. That's why we do those things. We want to show them God's love through our actions such that we gain their attention so that then we can turn that moment of attention to a discussion about heavenly things. That's how Jesus did everything he did in his ministry. So for following his lead in terms of feeding and healing and the like, don't forget the second part of what he did in every case is he spoke the gospel to them. When the church becomes preoccupied with solving only earthly needs without turning those contacts into heavenly discussions, then we're following the same mistakes as these followers did here. We're trying to take Jesus by force into a direction that he will not go. The ministry of the church cannot be co-opted into a mission of charity or public works. It's not the church at that point. It's that kind of thinking that eventually leads to things like Christian hospitals, Christian universities, Christian retirement homes, Christian businesses. Ironically, many of those institutions eventually outlaw the preaching of the gospel in the spirit of tolerance or because of governmental requirements. The church mission is to preach the gospel so that souls will be saved. The body's not our focus. The spirit is. And if the body becomes a focus, it only does so, so that the spirit can be engaged with the message of the gospel. To do one without the other is pointless. Let's uh, end there. So that's the feeding of the 5,000. We'll come back next time and we'll look at 
the time they cross as they finish this scene and cross the river. Following that, Jesus meets the crowd on the other side and they have a spirited conversation about the meaning of all of these things. But from a new perspective, Father, thank you, Father, for this uh, opportunity to understand the mission of the church again, to see the miraculous provision that your son made available in that day and and to think and consider the, the possibility that that's still happening around us today. You haven't stopped providing and the miracles are still happening, Father, but just like those disciples, we may only see a, a basket full at a time. Don't let us forget, Father, that you're doing a great work through a step of obedience every time we serve in faith, every time we receive in faith, every time we thank you in faith. Thank you, Lord, for the time tonight and study as always. Um, help us to continue, Father, to stay faithful to the study of your of your word. And send us away from here safely to a good week of Thanksgiving, Father, a week in which we can remember your provision as appointed on the calendar. And we look forward to returning in your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.